Welcome and good morning, New River Fellowship and our online audience. Uh, I'm actually recording this on Monday, April 17th, because our backup AV guy on Sunday, uh, who's also me, forgot to push record. So apologize for that. And to John, who always does a fantastic job with our sounds, that one is all on me. Um, so this is probably going to feel more like a podcast episode than a sermon message, uh, because it's not our recording from our worship service. But I did want to go ahead and record this knowing uh, there are many out there who have been journeying with us through the scriptures. Uh, and that means a lot to me and to our church. Abigail and I, when we've you know, kind of prayed about what do we see God doing in the scriptures? What do we see God doing in his spirit? Uh, as far as what the church looks like, we've, you know, begun pretty convinced that the work God's doing here at NRF and in the New River Valley isn't just unique to us. Now, sure, there's there's elements of it that we get to work out in our context and with our people that are unique, um, but the overall heartbeat of Scripture or the life of a follower of Christ that we see isn't just for us here. So thank you for walking with us. Uh, I hope this is helpful to you as you grow in your faith. Um, I also want to let you know, I, again being the backup AV guy that I am. I also forgot to record the sermon uh, from our very first Sunday a couple weeks ago in Matthew 1. So I'll probably try to go back and re-record that one as well. Uh, but for now, here's where we were at yesterday, walking through verses 17 through 48 in Matthew 5. So we began yesterday talking about how Jesus is addressing a crowd that had a bunch of different ideas as to what this blessed life looks like. If you remember from last week in chapter 4, Jesus in the Beatitudes is kind of showing us, hey, this is what a better life looks like. This is how, uh, you know, the game is to be played and what, uh, you know, what life looks like. Um, and just from the Jewish perspective, there were at least four different major groups that each had their different idea as to what this blessed life looked like. You had the Essenes uh, that kind of saw withdrawing from the world or waiting for the Messiah is what this blessed life looked like. You had the Zealots, which said, well, no, we actually need to take political power, kick out Rome, and reestablish a godly moral kingdom. That's what God is really after. Of course, the ones we're probably more familiar with, the Pharisees, uh, that were kind of pushing, hey, the perfect interpretation and application of the Old Testament is blessed. If we can get everything perfectly right, then God will be most pleased with us. And the Sadducees said, well, it's really more about sacrifice, making sure we're still working in the temple, doing all the sacrifices, you know, both physical and spiritual. That's what God is really after. And I share with the church as we were thinking about this, we hear similar answers today. Um, you know, what life is the life that pleases God? It's, you know, sometimes we, we fall back on one of those four things. Uh, and there's others. You know, Jesus was speaking to a Greco-Roman world that if you look at their philosophers and their religious traditions, yeah, everyone struggles with this question of what life is pleasing to God. What does this blessed life look like? And Matthew 5, 17 through 48, I want to be a little careful to say this, that it might not give us the full 
answer. We're not looking to build you know, all of our theology for everything we do off of just one place, but it does give us the foundational answer. Enough for us to say, if we're living a life that's missing what we see here in this passage, we're not living it as Christ. We're, we're missing something fundamental to who God is. And really, to give you the spoiler, uh, Matthew 5, 17 through 48 is going to show us that Jesus's life in the Spirit is a life of mercy. Very simple. It's a life of mercy. And why? Because practicing mercy changes us into God's image. So, Jesus's life in the Spirit is a life of mercy because practicing mercy changes us into God's image. I'll read chapter 5, verses 17 through 48, and we'll talk about this. So verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going out with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that the whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard it said that it was uh, to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Lord, we are grateful today that you have shown mercy to us. Um, Just as we were singing yesterday how your mercy is more, and we can praise you for that, Um, Lord, sometimes we struggle to believe that your mercy really is stronger than darkness, right? That that your mercy really is greater than what we see going on around us. And we also struggle to believe, Lord, that your mercy, um, it covers our sins, (laughs) that it really does forgive us and put us in a right place before you. We struggle, Lord, to understand that your mercy is new every morning that it doesn't run out, it doesn't have an expiration date on it, and that it really doesn't you know, only apply to us or to some people or on some days. So, Father, um, thank you for showing us through Christ what a life of mercy looks like. And Father, please may we restore this um, to our lives, our spiritual lives, and in the lives of our church as well. In your name we pray. Amen. So guys, the key to understanding this part of Matthew 5 lies in verses 17 through 20. And I know I kind of gave you the spoiler a little bit. I likened it to a a pitcher that's tipping pitches to the team. Um, Never really figured out why you'd want to do that. But anyways, that's, that's what's going on. All of this hinges on mercy. That Jesus's life in the spirit is a life of mercy. There's two big questions that we need to answer when we look at verses 17 through 20, and kind of answering that helps us understand the rest of the passage. So the first question we have to nail down is, what did Jesus mean when he said, I've come to fulfill the law, not abolish it? Right, that's that's going to make a big difference to our study. And the second one, why did Jesus have to make this claim? Right, what was he teaching that sounded so against the Old Testament that people thought he was just getting rid of it? So two big questions. Let's start with the first one. What did Jesus mean when he said, I've come to fulfill, not abolish, the law? So first, we, let's look at the Greek. Uh, abolish comes from the Greek word kataluo, which means to overthrow or to discard, kind of to throw away into the trash. And fulfill is pleroo, which is to carry into effect or to bring something to happen. And I would say I, I'm used to think about this passage Um, using the analogy of a video game, right? That God designed a video game, what we would call life, uh, with a right way to play it, the law. And if you played the right way, if you followed the law, you would get closer to God. You would level up. And the game is then completed when we finally get to be with God forever in heaven. And that would make Jesus kind of like our video game master, right? He beats the levels for us. He fulfills the law. He then unlocks the full life. He gets all the way to the end of the game. He beats the boss level, unlocks this life with God, and then he gives it to us so that we don't have to play the game. 
And that would then kind of lead, well, now that Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament, then we can focus now more on the New Testament. How does it interpret Jesus and tell us, you know, what was Jesus showing us about the game? Unfortunately, as, as good and as easy as that analogy is, the more I was preparing this week, I realized it's, it's not really a good analogy uh, because the Greek doesn't really give us this picture. Jesus actually shows up and says, well, I'm not overthrowing, I'm not discarding the game. He says nothing about what I'm about to do or what I'm about to say is going to eliminate the Old Testament, verse 18. What I'm actually going to do, Jesus says, is carry it into effect. So rather than beating the levels and giving us the reward at the end of the game, Jesus is showing up to say, here's how God always wanted the game to be played. Now, you're still going to play the game, follower of Christ, but... Here's what the life that God made us for hidden in the law, here's what that looks like. We now get a perfect picture of this in Jesus. So what is this? That's what it means when Jesus says, all right, I'm fulfilling the law. I am showing you what God has been after this entire time. So what does this life look like? Jesus says, well, now, you know, why, why did he have to make this claim? What was he teaching that sounded so against the Old Testament? And really, guys, at this point in the Gospel of Matthew, we have to say, well, what has Jesus said so far that would have been really radical? And that's really what we saw last week. I mean, Jesus' teaching, at least in the Gospel of Matthew, at this point has just been the Beatitudes and the part about you know, being the earth's salt and the world's light. So something in the Beatitudes in that salt light message has to be what was so radical to everyone. And I, I kind of started to see this a little bit in the Beatitudes. I didn't flesh it out then, and I'm kind of glad I did because it really makes more sense to talk about today. But if you read through the Beatitudes, you start to see that all of them kind of pair up together except for one. So what I mean by that, verse 3 fits with verse 8. The poor in spirit are promised to the kingdom of heaven, and then the spirit transforms the poor in spirit to be the pure in heart. Verse 4 goes with verse 9. The mourners are promised comfort, and then the spirit transforms them to find peace. Kind of this idea of, you know, if I'm mourning, uh, I'm promised comfort, now I'm getting peace. Peace and comfort being very closely related together. Verse 5 fits with verse 10, right? The meek are promised to inherit the earth, and then the Spirit transforms them to say, even in your suffering, even in your meekness, here you go. Here is the kingdom. And verse 6 kind of goes with verses 11 and 12. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, no matter what they are facing, they receive that reward. They are fulfilled. But one beatitude not only doesn't have a pair, but it doesn't fit the pattern. Because all of these other beatitudes, the, the reward is God. Blessed are the blank for they're going to either receive God or receive God's kingdom. He's very explicit the re, explicitly the reward, except for verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. 
The only ones not promised to receive God are promised to receive mercy. Now, is Jesus saying, (laughs) if you show mercy, you don't receive God? No. What Jesus is doing is he's making a claim about the nature of who God is, about what does this life in the Spirit looks like. These all hinge on mercy. Why did Jesus have to assure everyone that he wasn't abolishing the law of the prophets? What was this thing that was so radical? It was that Jesus is showing up saying that what the life God was after in the Old Testament law, in the prophets, what does a righteous life look like? Fundamentally, it's mercy. And that really went against much of the Jewish tradition in how they interpreted the Old Testament law. I mean, the practice at the time that Jesus is speaking was to kind of figure out the right and the wrong things for every situation, right? Let's go look at the law. Let's see what the right thing is. Let's see what the wrong thing is. Let's figure out all the different scenarios that could happen so that we can stay in the right, avoid the wrong. And then, you know, if we find ourselves to be in the wrong, what do we do to be right again? Um, And and I I shared with the church yesterday, as I say it out loud, it kind of sounds like many churches and ministries today. I mean, how many arguments and movements do you hear in our faith that start over determining what's right, what's wrong, how do I avoid the wrong, how do I stay in the right, and how do I move from wrong to right, right? That's That's a very clear line of thinking I think many of us have today. And I do want to be careful to say, look, Jesus is is not suggesting that the right and the wrong don't matter. Please do not hear me saying that uh, at all today. Jesus says he didn't come to abolish the law, right? It's not going anywhere. It's not like God's standards of right or wrong have changed or suddenly don't matter now that we have Jesus. That's not at all what we're going. But I, I was thinking, you know, church, if if what Jesus was saying was going to be continuing on this right-wrong focus, then this message would not have rubbed everyone the wrong way. Because there was a group that was fixated on the right and the wrong. They should have heard, you know, if Jesus was focusing on a right-wrong kind of thinking, they would have been all over it and in his camp. That would have been the Pharisees. Yet Jesus demands that our righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. Verse 20. So either we we need more laws for right and wrong, right? Because how else can you beat the gold standard for righteousness in that day? Or is the standard wrong? Is Jesus saying we need to do better at keeping right versus wrong? Or is he saying there's actually another measuring stick that God has always used to determine what a righteous life looks like? Again, again, this is not the only picture of what his righteous life looks like. But the key to understanding the life that God is after, what is a true life lived out in God's spirit through Christ, glorifying the Father, it has to have mercy. Any interpretation, any action that does not bear the fruit of mercy, church, is not of God. It can't be. So with mercy as our key to understanding, this is what God has always been after that actually then becomes our lens to read verses 21 
through 48. And I'll be honest, it makes it a little bit easier to understand what Jesus is after. Because if we were living in the right-wrong mentality, we'd be saying, okay, Jesus is using this pattern. You've heard that it was said, right? You used to, about, you used to think about these things in terms of right or wrong, right? So now we're looking to say, okay, how is Jesus, you know, is he going to say that something that was wrong is now right? Or is he going to draw the lines even tighter around rightness, like make it even smaller or make it even more concrete? Jesus does change the script and say, but I say to you, but in doing so, when you pair that with when he said, I'm not abolishing the law, Jesus is saying, I am not giving you a new right or wrong, right? God's sense of right and wrong has not changed. What Jesus is saying is, is this, here's how mercy changes your view of the law. Here's how knowing that what God has been after all along is mercy, here is now what the life of God looks like. Yes, the right and wrong, the, the bits and pieces in the law, that pointed you towards it, but here's what it truly was, mercy. So with this pattern, when you read through verses 21 through 48, we start to see all these different case studies of how practicing mercy changes us into God's image, right? That because Jesus's life in the spirit is a life of mercy, if we practice mercy, we will be changed into the image of God. So let's look at some of these pictures. Verses 21 through 26, Jesus says, you were told not to murder, right? You used to understand this as the right thing to do is not murder. The wrong thing to do is murder. Okay, so maybe this is a little easy case study to start with. Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment, right? That mercy now changes our focus from, you know, whether it's right or wrong to murder to say, okay, step back. How are you valuing life, right? If to murder is to take life into your hands, right? Because literally in murdering, you are choosing to end life, then how do we value life? Verse 22, mercy changes our motivation. We're no longer driven by anger, right? We are not going to be angry people who say, ah, oh, this makes me so mad. I'm going to now step in and do something about this, right? We're not driven by anger, by needing to prove that my sense of right or wrong is better than yours. Verse 22 also shows us how mercy changes our mindset. We're not looking to control others' life. That's not what mercy does. Verses 23 through 26, mercy changes our pursuit, right? If we're not looking to control life, what are we looking to do? Pursue peace, driven to make peace at all costs. Right, so in this case, mercy changes us to say being right with God is more than just is murder right or wrong. It's showing us to treat everyone the way that the Spirit deals with us. We're not driven by anger. We're not driven by control. We are looking to make peace with others. Verses 27 through 32. Jesus says you were told to focus on right or wrong in marriage, right? Adultery, always bad. Divorce, you know, there were some situations where it was okay and others where it wasn't. Uh, and, and, you know, people hearing this are thinking, oh, is Jesus about to, you know, clarify, you know, okay, divorce is actually okay for this or wrong for this. But really, Jesus says, look, I'm not 
that's not my main focus. Mercy changes us to focus now on how do we fundamentally value others in the context of relationships and even specifically in the context of sex. So verses 28 through 30, they use this phrase, you know, if you've looked with a woman with lustful intent, that Greek word is a epithomeo, which is wanting something for yourself. Right? So Jesus says, you know, you've, you've focused on whether the act was right or wrong. But I tell you, look, if mercy is going to train you to never even view someone as something you could have, right? Most of the acts that are committed in adultery or, you know, factors that lead to divorce come from somebody just simply trying to make the other person theirs, make them serve themselves. Jesus says, forget whether the act is right or wrong, mercy is going to say you, you can't even look at people that way. We don't even view people as whether they could be ours or whether they could serve our needs or not. But then he does go the step further in verses 31 and 32 and say, look, what, what specific act does Jesus give you know, divorce to be okay in? It's in terms of sexual immorality. The Greek there is pornei which is the literal act of making something your own, right? Sometimes we read this and say, oh, well, if you just do the wrong, you know, sexual sin, then you're okay for divorce. Jesus is expanding this out to say, you know, if epithomeo was wanting something for yourself, pornei is the act of actually making it yourself. So mercy trains us not only to just not look at people as, oh man, what, what could they do for me? But Mercy also trains us to never, ever, ever follow through with the act of making someone our own, specifically here, very vividly in the context of a covenant relationship, literally in, in sex, right? That what God has given us in relationships with one another is never to make the other serve us. We never are to make the image of God in someone else serve our image, Okay, that, that is against what mercy trains us to do. Now we go to verses 33 through 37. Jesus says, you shall not swear falsely, right? Lying, bad. Telling the truth, good. M mercy takes a step further. Mercy humbles us to say, if truth belongs to God, then anytime I call something true, I'm saying this is what God wants. Right? I used the analogy yesterday of uh, when you're playing spades right? That ace of spade is your trump card. And how good does it feel in arguments, especially as Christians, to pull out, well, that's the truth. Bam, right? That feels like that is our trump card. Mercy trains us to say, you know what? If I'm going to throw out that trump card about truth, I'm making a claim about what God wants and who he is because truth belongs to our God. Maybe I should not be able to do that so flippantly. <laughs> like maybe I should have humility to not only throw that card at other people, but to recognize, well, God's truth is equally valid for me. If the only time I am interacting with someone in a moment of tension, if my focus is purely on what others need to do differently, right? How truth needs to change them, then I have lost humility and mercy Jesus shows us carries humility with it. Verses 38 through 45, almost done. Jesus says, you've heard it said that you should respond in kind. And this for me is the big one. 
to take revenge appropriate to what has been taken from you. Mercy changes us, guys, to respond to everyone, even the most wicked enemy, with grace. Verses 39 through 42 show us that we're going to serve everyone, not just those who serve us, not just those who we agree with. We serve all. Verse 44 and 45 takes a step further. We will love all, not only those who love us, not only those who just look like us. In fact, Jesus summarizes all of these arguments in verses 46 through 48. He says, look, to debate right and wrong and to just live with those who agree with your right-wrong lens is no different than anyone else. Jesus says anyone can live like that. You want to live different? You want to bear the image of God? You want to show the world what God looks like? You are called to live differently, Christian. Jesus says, I call you to be perfect as the God whose image you bear is perfect. In the context of Matthew 5 here, we see you could put the word mercy in there. I call you to be merciful, as the God whose image you bear is merciful. Church, it is practicing mercy that changes us into the image of God. There's a lot of ways we want to step in and take control to make sure God's image is born in our lives, in our world, church. But if it's missing mercy, it's wrong. And and I truly believe this is one of the biggest threats to the church today, that we have given up on mercy. There's few things as a pastor that sadden me more when I hear believers say things like, well, you know, we've tried being kind, we've tried being gracious, we've tried prayer, we've tried forgiving, Things aren't changing. We need to do something. And it scares me, church, because when I hear believers talk like that, typically what we do is we respond in kind, right? If people are yelling loud against us and praying for them and and witnessing to them, and oh, it's just not working, then what do we do to a group that's yelling loud? We yell back. What do we do to a group that's fighting for power in one arena? We fight back. Like that, when we talk about doing something different, it usually bears the fruit of responding in kind. And it, it, when I say it's a big threat, it's because it fundamentally goes against what Jesus is teaching here. And it goes against other places in scripture that teach the same thing. Perhaps none more clearly than what Paul writes in a very very familiar passage to us, Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I mean, we read this with our right-wrong lens to say, well, if we're going to be a living sacrifice— then we have to not be conformed to the world. We have to instead be transformed, and that becomes our platform for the things that we do. But that right-wrong lens misses the very part right smack at the beginning where it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Mercy is what drives this picture of what being a living sacrifice looks like to present your body as a living sacrifice isn't just to serve God at all costs. It's to literally become like God in his image, 
in all things. And what we see in the living sacrifice of Jesus, you know, on the cross, which we celebrate in Easter and right here at the beginning of his ministry. So this is a picture that's all throughout Jesus's ministry, part of who Jesus is. It's mercy. You know, when Jesus died on the cross, did he hop off the cross and say, okay, well, guys, you know, disciples, I've, I've been showing you what mercy looks like. We've been training you in mercy, and it ended up with me dead on the cross. So you guys need to go do something else. Like, like now it's our turn to stand up now that I've died. No, that's, that's not at all what Jesus did. I shared with the church just almost kind of a, a, a laughable picture, but you know, in the Old Testament, when they offered an animal sacrifice, uh, did the animal, after it had been sacrificed, turn around to the priest and say, okay, you know what? Uh, if you're done now, I think it's my turn. <laughs> no, that's, that's not what a sacrifice does. That's not a merciful sacrifice. As we're working through putting this together, it, it made me think of this video that we show uh, actually as part of our customer service training at Blacksburg Transit. Uh, it's a case study of a uh, heated argument between a young female passenger and this male driver who's uh, easily twice her size. Uh, if you've ever ridden public transportation, you know most places you have to pay uh, fare to ride. I mean, it's not always free. Uh, BT is, you know, just shout out to Blacksburg Transit. They are fare free right now, so you can go ride the bus for free. Um, but that's not always been true, and that's not commonly true everywhere. So this passenger doesn't have the fare to ride the bus, and this driver's not really patient with her, right? Like, this is the millionth fare dispute this month he's had. And as she argues with him, uh, and kind of understandably so, right? People depend on public transportation to get them places. Most people aren't just riding the bus uh, because they have nothing better to do. Uh, although I, I would probably be in that minority camp. I, I do love riding the bus. But most people are riding, you know, to get to a job, to get to an interview, to get to the store, to get home, right? It, it, it's a desperate thing. So as this passenger is, is arguing, getting louder and angrier out of her desperation, the driver keeps responding in kind because you know what? He's 100% right. You don't have the fare, you can't ride the bus. The driver is 100% right the entire time. And so he just clings to that. And it builds to the point where the passenger gets so fed up, she spits in the face of the driver. And it's that point in the video, uh, we watch the cheesy reenactment. And, you know, it's, you know, it doesn't really convey the depth of what's going on. But someone in our class uh, last week actually found the footage, the raw footage, and we watched it, and it was disturbing. Because the driver gets out of his seat, turns to this much smaller female passenger, and says, now you've done it. If you're going to act like a man, I'm going to treat you like a man. And pow, he uppercuts her so hard she almost passes out. She stumbles backwards off the bus, falls off the bus. He says, you're off the bus now. It was disturbing. I mean, we watched that in the classroom at BT and we're like, um... And moving right along, I mean, there's just nothing you can say to that because everything in you goes, oh, oh no, you can't do that. Like fundamentally, we know we cannot do that. 
But church, that is exactly what it looks like when you remove mercy from a situation. Because you, you, you've got someone who was 100% in the right, right? That driver knows he is holding right and wrong perfectly true. You don't have the fare. You can't ride the bus. But in clinging to that truth without mercy, it escalated to the point where he did something that you know, if you asked him in a moment of you know, clear level-headed judgment at any other time, hey, would it be right for you to physically assault a passenger for not having what could be at most maybe a three, four, maybe $5 fare? Is it worth physical assault, jail time, permanent record, criminal, losing your job? Like, is it worth essentially throwing your life away? Of course the driver's going to say no, right? But this is what happens when we cling to our sense of right and wrong and we throw mercy out of the window. Church, we end up doing things that we know deep down aren't true. Our testimony looks absolutely nothing like what we know it's supposed to be. This is what happens when we remove mercy, from living as followers of Christ. And it's it scares me as a pastor to watch Christians throw mercy out the window. Somebody I, I, I've heard and listened to put it as sacrificing mercy on the altar of truth. To say, you know what? If we hold right and wrong perfectly, we're good. But Jesus is showing us, look, the life of Christ, the life of God in his spirit fundamentally is a life of mercy. Again, we're not building our entire worldview and our entire picture of the life of Christ off of one passage. Okay, I'm not saying that right and wrong does not matter. We're not saying that, that the standard doesn't matter. Jesus himself says right here, I did not abolish the law. But Jesus is clearly showing us if we do not have mercy, then we are not living in the spirit. We are not living the life that Christ has given to us. We are not glorifying God. So practically what this looks like, we're not talking about the what today. Jesus wasn't questioning the what in Matthew 5 here. He was charging us to look at the how. How are you engaging with others around you? It's, it's common for me at, at conferences or just hearing people uh, you know, that are deeply passionate, people who are you know, in different movements, Christian movements, just saying, look, you know, once I learned that this is true, now I know this, I just, I need to go do this for God. I feel like we have to go make this happen. You know what? When, when we find the truth of God, we should be driven to action. But just as Jesus today is not questioning the what, I, I am not questioning our what, church, although the, <laughs> certainly there is room to question the what. Don't, don't hear me saying again that that doesn't matter. But the how is what Jesus is after today. Um, I've now been able to be at New River Fellowship for almost two years, and we have done a lot of things, right? Our what has been fairly busy with you know, different small group ministries starting up, different 
uh, other ministries in the church starting to come together, training up leaders, uh, different uh, things like the Agape Center, the Samaritan Inn, uh, Celebrate Recovery, different programs in our community that, that we partner with and are very passionate about. Those things, the what, are really good. But my measure of success, the things that I have been most excited about at our church has been just watching the how change. You know, that I have seen people here who were quicker to anger, that are now quicker to listen, quicker to prove their point, now quicker to go meet with those they don't understand. Um, you know, now as a pastor, instead of hearing about, well, so-and-so did this, and I need you to do this, I hear, hey, pastor, just want to let you know, you know, so-and-so and I had a disagreement. We went to lunch, and here's where we're at now. You know, like, they, <laughs> we get to hear about it after the fact instead of right in the middle because, because the how is changing. We're, we're literally seeing the Spirit shape people's hearts. And for me as a pastor, that is the biggest win that is what we celebrate on Easter. That's what we celebrate every day, right? If Jesus shows us that we can go about the right things do in the wrong way, then he is celebrating more molding the heart than just getting the right thing done. So this is why we celebrate today that Jesus's life in the spirit is a life of mercy because practicing mercy changes us into God's image. And we close with this prayer, uh, which, by the way, I hope nobody has ever thought that the prayers at the end of the sermons are mine. They all come from the Valley of Vision, um, which is a collection of Puritan prayers. Uh, but this one uh, really tied everything together, where we pray together. Oh, my Savior, I thank thee from the depths of my being for thy wondrous grace and love in bearing my sin in thine own body on the tree. May thy cross be to me as the tree that sweetens my bitter maras, as the rod that blossoms with life and beauty, as the brazen serpent that calls forth the look of faith. By thy cross, crucify my every sin. Use it to increase my intimacy with thyself. Make thy cross the ground of all my comfort, the liveliness of all my duties, the sum of all thy gospel promises the comfort of all my afflictions, the vigor of my love, of my thankfulness, of my graces, the very essence of my religion. And by it, give me that rest without rest, the rest of ceaseless praise. O oh, my Lord and Savior, thou hast also appointed a cross for me to take up and carry, a cross before thou givest me a crown. Thou hast appointed it to be my portion, but self-love hates it. Carnal reason is unreconciled to it. Without the grace of patience, I cannot bear it, walk with it, profit by it. O blessed cross, what mercies dost thou bring with thee? Thou art only esteemed hateful by my rebel will, heavy because I shirk thy load. Teach me, gracious Lord and Savior, that with my cross thou sends promised grace so that it may bear it patiently, that my cross is thy yoke which you have promised is easy, and thy burden which is light. Amen.